Hello, dear listener. As I begin this episode, a bit of sad news. On Saturday, September 24, 2016, Bill Mollison, one of the founders of Permaculture, passed away. He was 88 years old. By the time I would have interviewed Bill, he had already gone into semi-retirement, and so we never spoke. I never met him or took a class with him, and so only know about him in cursory ways, the stories of others, the people who I've interviewed over the years who did know. Bruce Charles Mollison, who everyone called Bill. And so, because I never knew him, I've included a link to Graham Bell's remembrance of him, which you'll find in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. And for anyone who practices permaculture, take a few minutes and read that article and learn more about this incredible dynamic figure who helped to bring this idea of permaculture into the world so that now over 40 years after his chance encounter with David Holmgren we can talk about these ideas and continue to water and fertilize and watch the ideas grow that he planted the seeds for so long ago it's been asked that in his memory we plant trees so as we settle into fall in the northern hemisphere Now's a great time to plant one, so that throughout these cooler and colder months, those trees will spend their energy on a good, healthy, strong root system. If you plant a tree, share a picture with me. I'd like to know what you're doing to honor this work in the world. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. This episode, number 1636, is the second session recorded at Charm City Farms in Baltimore, Maryland, earlier this year. We pick up with a question and answer session with the audience members, where Victoria and Eric, and sometimes I, respond to the questions that are raised. Throughout this discussion, we touch on the themes of how to bring people to reconnection with themselves and the natural world, how to draw out what it is that people seek, and how to get folks involved to meet them where they're at and to find what their passion is so that they can do what it is that they love within the context of each of our individual work as farmers or educators, designers, practitioners. A little note before we begin, this is adults having a conversation, so there is some swearing and so there may be a few words not appropriate for the workplace or young listeners. But let's begin with a question from Orlando. And uh, I'll join you again afterwards. My name's Orlando. So, Victoria, I'm very interested in, I guess, the origin of your interest. How you came about to seek out being a healer. It kind of struck the nerve with me because I'm constantly thinking about, like, well, how did I end up here? You know, where did this influence come from? I definitely know, but it's something that I, I still continue to play back in my head because of um, just those moments that for me in my childhood that I can relate to me just being here today. So I'm curious to know, like, when did that start for you? And what was that influence? I mean, are you saying that, like, you think, you see your childhood congruent with what you're doing now, or you don't? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm, okay. 
per- so personal. Yeah, probably at birth. <laughs> I mean, I had a really um, relaxed childhood, I guess. Like, I grew up in the old suburbs of Atlanta, which was, like, really big lots. And, like, my mom was so great. She's got a different temperament now. When I was a kid, she was really just, like, she didn't have to know where I was. Um, I think I was kind of the tail end of that era. Um, so I had, like total free reign like my backyard went into like woods that went into like a creek I could just go I could like walk for miles up and down that and we had a little tiny log cabin in the North Georgia mountains right at the base of the Appalachians my dad's been going there since he was like 15 it's the oldest structure in the county so like you know I spent a lot all summer every summer up there and a lot of time up there so that was just like free reign you know it was like not really developed and some abandoned houses and free reign so um, I had so much space and freedom for um, just to to develop and to like just be in my own world, which wasn't like my world, which was like the world, I guess. So I just had like a lot of really strong drives as a kid. Like I have strong memories and strong memories of like strange um, kind of awarenesses and like I remember, like even as a kid, it was like so strong. Like my my creek, you know, it's like certain rocks, like the ways that I would interact with them. Um, it was like knowing that a rock, like it had a name, but it wasn't like a name you get your mouth around. It was more like kind of a shape, things like that. Or like kind of getting across the river, always having these impulses of like, I know I need to throw myself. Like I need to be able to leap in my mind or I'm going to fall in the water. You know, all these things like that that I think are like, when we're learning how to put our bodies together, that was there too. So I just didn't have anything to obscure that. And in my cabin, it was like to the max. So I, I think I was able to like live in the kingdom then um, as a little kid. And then when I went into schooling and stuff, it was like private Catholic schooling. It was like lockdown, like you're in prison and like you're going to feel shame. Oh, shame. And like you're going to feel persecuted. And, you know, so I got locked down into that. I had things to learn there um but those pieces like whatever was able to like be solidified like the cement was poured I guess you know um then comes out I you know I ask myself this a lot these days where I'm like how did this happen like how did I even ask myself like how does how does a soul ever get get themselves above the water like in this world today like how does it happen and everyone does you know, like every, was it Sri Rajneesh who got named Osho, that spiritual teacher, you know, he wrote, and many others are written, um, you know, every river is flowing to the sea, always. Don't push the river. There's no need to push the river. Um, and each one of us is, like, no matter what, we're all flowing to the sea. We're all, like, in our perfect place, flowing to the sea, the perfect place we've chosen. And I, you know, I think just like there's been a million obstacles, like everything in our society and our world is so perfectly pitted to work against true liberation, you know, to work against love, the powers of love, uh, all these things. And yet, you know, like each flower blooms and it's in its time. So I do think about that a lot. And I'm, I'm just struck more and more with wonder and, um, amazement and love that like from my perspective now which is just somewhere in the middle 
know, I see, I have much more vivid, clear memories of all different points in my life, and I see and appreciate, like, how, like, there are signs all along, and there's, like, things supporting you all along, even when you think you're, like, in the dark of the dark. Um, it's like it ne the light never goes out. Like the support never goes out and the help never, never goes out. And I see how, I'm seeing so much more lately how like every avenue I went, I feel like a, even though I'm not like a Jupiter kind of energy, like I feel like that sometimes, like a renaissance person, like I just did a little of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. I never like specialized in anything. And it's like, I did so many different types of school. Like I went in all these different directions. But I wasn't jumping around. Like each one was like, I need to do this. I need to do this. I never knew why, because I would follow. I would like have to go somewhere else. Like I would come to a point where I'd realize I can't do this anymore because it's. Um, I learned what I needed to learn, and if I stay here, I'm. I'm just gonna. Atrophy, um, but now it's like it's incredible how I see all those pieces coming back, and there's still some that haven't come back, and I'm wondering like, like art. I did art nonstop until I was like early 20s and that hasn't come back I don't know if that ever will um, but every little piece like even of every different school I study different traditions um, I see how like I really need needed that to create what I'm creating to be the one that's creating me you know there's this not like there's one here that's always been here that's creating me into that one and like the plan is uh, like beyond comprehension, you know, and it's um, it's it, it's miraculous, and it, but it's commonplace too, because it's every, every one of us. I think, I know, of course, every one of us. I don't know, is that getting to your question? If I'm forcing you to manifest your future in some way, in this case verbally, what's it sound like? My future. What does it sound like in words or in sound? I mean, I can't really read your thoughts, but... I have no, no future plans. What you want to accomplish? Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. None. Um, I can't have any none. anymore. Um, I used to be able to have like one-year plans or five-year plans or make them. Yeah, but I, Sometimes I still do as a practice. Um, <laughs> it's like the further I get day by day... Um, like it's, it can be exhilarating, like really, I have to give it all away, like all ideas of all invest. And it's not like, it's not like, yeah, I'm just not going to try. I'm just going to let the universe take care of it. Um, it's like, it's really like, okay, you know, I can have these, there's always parts of me that are kind of planning things. Like I'm always working on things a year in advance or this program I want to do. And that's fine. And I'm always doing that. I'm interested in, I create a lot of things. I'll spend a whole year creating a curriculum of something and like launch it. And then like, you know, signs are telling me like, no, nope, you know, like the world isn't biting. This wasn't meant to be. And I just have to let it go. I spend a lot of time making things like that um, and kind of learning from them. Victoria, can I follow up on that? Is that because you feel self-sufficient because that you know you can go out because you have the knowledge to feed yourself that you don't feel that you need to constantly create an opportunity? No, it doesn't have anything to do with material. Um, doesn't have, it doesn't have anything to do with feeling like I can meet my needs materially. It's, um, 
it's just over time the trust deepens you know it's like the impossible happens and they're like whoa and then the impossible happens again and you're like there's a certain like memory that gets built in there muscle memory or something you're like okay like i'm just not gonna worry i'm not gonna like um worry worry myself to death about it um and it's always and it's always better than like what i could think of or imagine and always like you know like things come out of the corner and it's like whoa no way so i feel like to i always have to be open to that so no i um i'm always i have dreams and plans but i have no plan there's nothing set. There's nothing concrete. It's just what comes. Because it's not like I, I don't really give a shit about the future, <laughs> you know. But the way you say that though doesn't come across as if it's if it's uh, not caring about the future from a place of apathy. Though it's not, not. It doesn't come across as nihilistic or or that the future is meaningless. But there's something else to that space. That's the way that I hear that. Yeah, I'm so averse to speaking in like these you af- what euphemism, aphemism, whatever. You know, like, the future is now, only now exists. You know, like, oh, we're so oversaturated by this stuff because they're true things, but then they get misused and then overused and then they become false. But I'm going through a real period lately of really understanding, kind of having this concretized in me, like, of working from all things, really, from right here. Like, I'll work with things that happened in my past or, like, memories, but, like, actually go into them from right here and, like, heal things, change things. And it's the same with the future. It's just about like the way I'm creating it right here. Um, it's not like eerie fairy. It's just real. It's actually a real matter of fact. Um, and it's mostly about not projecting fear ahead of me. It's like what you, it's like throwing rocks ahead of you or something. Like whatever you throw ahead of you, then you're going to trip over the rock. You know, it's mostly like, just like throwing. It's kind of like, it's like, um, kind of like throwing rose petals <laughs> rose petals are a big um thing for me even though i'm not don't seem like that kind of person I use rose petals a lot in invisibly yeah that's what you wanted to hear yeah it's uh it's you it's actually very tangible you can you can really feel it it's like actual work so you, um, I took your fall foraging course and I had a wonderful time. And what is it that you're looking for your students to experience? What are, you hope, what are, what are your hopes for your students in this course? Uh, fun. <laughs> um, people kind of like realize this can all be really fun. Permission. I want them to experience permission. Like you're allowed to do this. You know, we create so many rules. There's so many rules in our culture, too. We've all created together. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do it this way. If you want to do this, it's got to be this way. There's no rules. I have rules. I'm like, always telling, taking them off. Like, gee, oh my gosh. Like, I can't believe how many rules I've been operating under that I created. Um, so permission. Um, like, like, so much permission. So much permission. I'd like people to experience... At least a little bit of peace, a little bit of, like at least hearing for a moment or touching for a moment the quiet, the deep quiet, almost being soothed by that. I think, I think our nervous systems need to be soothed by that. I think I also want people, hope people to experience 
I don't know, a little, like a little bit of awakening somewhere, like a little bit of like, like wherever it is for every person, you know, like when you, you know, if you're a teacher, it's like, you know, like usually it's like three quarters of the class or like, you know, and then you, there's always a, it's always different topics that interest different people. And then people are like, what was that you said? Do you have a book for that? You know, everyone's like, you know, everyone's following some trail and they'll, they'll, they'll light up at a, at a piece of it when they recognize a piece of it. Um, so, you know, I hope for, in everything I do, in any role that's teacher-like, um, for some awake, some little awakening of recognition, um, having gotten permission from oneself, um, for that, that little spark, that fire to kind of start burning, um, so that person's engine starts to run on it, you know, or they recognize it's running and can run with it, run for it. Those are really the things that are important to me. All the other things are surface, surface things, you know? Which are all important, botany and, you know, all that. It's all technical, but it's, it's, um, it's all like the sugar on top. Well, I have to say, I had a, a wonderful time, and, and one of the things that you taught me, and one of the things I got out of it was a sense of wonder. And what we did was a lot of, we went off trail, and I don't do that a lot. We follow the trails that, you know, parks and people have put in front of us. And we went off trail. And every time we did, we had a blast. And it was a lot of fun. So thank you. Oh, shucks. Thank you, Judy. Yeah, that's so important to me to not be on trails. It's like the, the meat of the curriculum. So, Victoria, this is an awesome space, this barn. What are your plans, um, like immediate plans for events or activities going on here? Um, so they're really Eric's plans. He's, he's the ringleader of this place. He's muscled it into being. Um, so I don't know if you want to bring him into this or not. Um, I'm really excited, particularly excited. And of course, we're doing workshops, like always. More this year, a lot more guest teachers. I just were able to bring in a lot more people. I'm really excited about those. I'm also really excited about like having a space to do more social event stuff, which I've always, you know, I'm such a, uh, I have such an attachment to the role of an outsider. So um, I'm really actually ex ecstatically excited about like, it's so goofy, like movie nights here, like every like Monday night, Monday nights are kind of our slot in the calendar for social event stuff. So a lot of, um, you know, cool permaculture-ish type of films and some other films I've been really um, just dying to offer, like for the upcoming, you guys too, permaculture course. Um, there's a film about the herbalist Juliette de Bericlay Levy. It's just such an important download. Like, I would just love people to see her. So it's so film nights, and uh, I just love to be able to do, like, we got clothing swap I want to do here, and, um, uh, you know, funny little events I do, like teaching people how to tattoo themselves. Um, and then I... Um, talk to Eric a little bit about this, but I really would like to do kind of like evening lectures every once in a while here. Just um, so many people, you know, as we get more networked, everyone's working on something incredible. So, you know, if they're not outright workshops, you know, people can come speak about the film they're making or the whatever field they're in. So um, there's at least one of those I really want to do. A lot of things like that. But Eric, I know Eric's got a lot of plans. He's really the, like the, the bull of all this. I don't know what happened. <laughs> there was a question asked. Your name was mentioned. You can say some things about your plans for this space, for workshops and classes and such. Is that it? That's the question? 
Yeah. Um, so up here, um, this was this space was like a dream come true because we're able to have classroom space so we can have technical support um, showing you know PowerPoints, videos, whatever. And then we also have this you know rugged space down here where we can tear stuff apart. Um, so we can do deer skinning and processing, meat processing down here. Uh, some woodworking, some primitive uh, woodworking and crafts, um, bone making, and then up here we can do, and then we also have a kitchen. Well, we will have a kitchen, I assure you, soon. <laughs> um, so we can expand on that, and we don't have to teach in people's houses <laughs> anymore. Um, so a larger kitchen, uh, teaching space, was that it? Uh, community space also, um, I would love uh, for respectful community members to be able to have access to like an egg corn crusher <laughs> that I bought. You know, there's no reason for every household to have a lot of stuff when, you know, communally we could just have, you know, one guy that's got the lawnmower or the, you know, huge pressure cooker or whatever. And I'd like to be that guy. <laughs> um, what events are coming up? What events are coming up? Was that the question? <laughs> no, my God. <laughs> so we have a permaculture um, class coming up here. Um, God, what else is um, fermentation? Um, what's here in this space? Um, it's not a huge lineup of stuff. We'll have cheese here later. Um, we'll be doing. Our locations are still so varied. Some auto easy auto repair stuff Spanish um, Spanish <laughs> class for uh, <laughs> Crystal has a sheet there I was gonna cheat but I'm trying to do it off memory <laughs> um, the other thing I, I wanted to do with this space is be able to offer it to uh, people who are already craftsmen uh, already artists and crafts um, that give them a space to teach what they're really good at, so I don't have to lie and fudge it. <laughs> um, so it not only gives them, you know, a platform to come and do what they love to do and talk about what they love to do, but because of the the lease and how inexpensive it is, we, I can still keep pretty low overhead, so we can keep the cost courses very low. Insurance is astronomical compared to the rent of this place. Here, I don't know what else. We get a sheet. <laughs> I can post the sheet online so people can see what the upcoming schedule is. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of it is hinged on me getting that uh, kitchen done, I think. Hello, everyone. Elena Keys, and what a wonderful audience we have here today. And um, thank you, Victoria and Eric, for making it happening, and Scott, of course. Um, question that I have, Victoria and Eric, what is your point of view on invasive species? and deer hunting because of so billions of dollars are being spent by, by federal government, uh, local governments on question of invasive species and you would have very good input to give uh, since you work with you, your day in nature every day. Thank you. Those are two really big questions. <laughs> Those are like big bullets. Uh, I'll try to speak to the first one. Um, I, I've been trying not to talk about invasive species lately. Because I said I'm trying to not <laughs> give all my focus to the so-called problem. Invasive species are a really personal part of my path and my learning. I don't know why. It's always been that way my whole life. 
it's a very challenging place for me. It's a place where more than pretty much any other places, I, st I have such gripping attachments there that it's really hard for me not to get totally lost in a lot of um, emotions about it. Like I just, it's really, I, I get so overwhelmed by grief and rage and anger, things like that. It's so hard for me to clearly speak and clearly act or know how to act in that way. I don't know why, it's just a place I am really deeply triggered and have been um, for a long time, so it's something that I'm working on. And I'm just one person. I, I don't have reasons why those plants are just so precious to me. I don't have a reason why. You know, if you look at it intellectually, I would challenge you to find a definition of invasive species. I'd really challenge you to find a definition. And so many of these very deep-rooted, uh, deep-rooted cultural attachments, you know, at any time it can be, you know, racism's the same way. They're so deep and they're so widely accepted in a certain way that it, the fact that there's no definition can often be overlooked, you know? Um, so invasive plants like that are like that to me. To me, they reflect, they're just another mirror reflection of a, a fear-based stance that is being reflected in a lot of ways. A lot against people, outsider people, you know, fear of outsiders. Um, you know, we don't want anything precious. You know, we don't want the way things are to be upset. So, f you know, plants the same way, you know, outsider plants. If you really look into that realm, it's it's so gets so wonky. There's no official, even uh, you know, different groups will have different definitions of which plants are invasive or not. Some that are quote unquote native, even to a certain area, can be invasive in the next county over. It gets very. Um, uh, it tends to lose, like I said, lose any definition. For myself, they're for some reason they're just closer to me. I mean, all, all, all plants I love, for some reason, those plants are just so much closer to me. Um, they're just like right here. And they've, for some reason, they've been my bigger teachers. They're often the ones that are kind of more, that I work with more. I've had a lot of thoughts about them in the past. I'm not going to go into all those. But my heart really bleeds, bleeds for that part of our culture. There are so many forms of life that are on the kill list, <laughs> you know, the government kill list. And it's, it, it blows my mind that it's so many times, you know, we've seen, God, probably hundreds of thousands of Roma gypsies murdered in the Holocaust. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jews have been slaughtered. And we're so aware of that. In all parts of the world, it's the same, you know, we're always slaughtering life, slaughtering life over an ideal, slaughtering something because of an idea. It just changes form, you know? So I think it's easy to look at it in terms of like, oh, they're just plants. You're just ripping up some English ivy from a little patch. And like, yeah, but it would be, it'd be easier to swallow if it weren't like the tip of a finger of a hand where actually the trunk is this 
this conglomerate of beliefs that is really causing us so much suffering on a really deep level. And that's why it's hard for me to, um, to let go of that. Deer hunting, I'm, I don't think, I don't know that I'm qualified to talk about that. I have strong feelings about it and new feelings in the last few years. Eric's probably more qualified to talk about it. I'll, I'll tell you very bluntly, um, you know, I'm the kind of person, I was a vegetarian from when I was like 13, you know? I was in a very sheltered life. I was like, had a very small environmental club at school and I became the head of the environmental club. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had a little speaker come in and show us a little movie or something on conventional uh, meat in the U.S., animal raising. And I was like, <gasps> you know, had no idea. I was vegetarian from that day on. Just like that, you know, till I was, you know, in my young adulthood. And I um, I went through intense periods of, you know, the, I was in spiritual schools, so um, veganism and all that is very sort of cultural add-ons to a lot of the spiritual communities. Strongly vegan for a long time. I was, you know, would get into like raw food, um, a lot of regular fasting, things like that. So really um, on the edge of self-denial. But doing it because I wanted, a I wanted, I was after the pure body. So meat has really been a major teaching for me, and it's a personal one for me. It's not, it's not about everyone. I really understand that every person's body is absolutely unique. On a cellular way, on a hereditary way, in an energetic way, every body is totally unique. Um, it's totally unique needs. Um, and for some people, um, I absolutely see that for them moving into a place where they don't, consume animal products or any at all, things like that is ideal for their system, um, ideal for their, their life and the things around them. And then for other people, that's a very bad decision. I was one of those. I was really sick. I was really sick for a long time. Um, but apart from my own, like my own physiology here, meat or just um, carcasses have been um, one of the greater really especially in the last few years, greater magnitude teachings for me. I, one of the reasons I'm here, like I think why I'm here, like why I chose to be here, it's like I want to show, we all do, but you know, love can go, and love goes anywhere. Love goes anywhere, anywhere. So for me, carcasses have been that way. Deer, oh my God, like, <laughs> You know, in a way, you know, asking me, this person here, yes, like eat deer, like yes, kill, kill, kill what you love, and you'll be transformed. Skin what you love, be covered in the blood of what you love, stink like high heaven for what you love. It's a passage. It can be a passage for those people for where that is. It's not for every, like that's not, everybody's got unique, all these unique paths. This is a personal one for me. I love the whole ecosystem is such a dry word. I love the whole, the whole thing, the whole woods, all the parts of it, you know? To say that, to take any one piece out of it is to get rid of all this, say no to all of it. So like, if you don't eat deer, if you do eat meat and you don't eat the meat that's around you, you're saying no to the whole ecosystem around you or you're like gonna push it away. There's so many deer here. Like there's, you know, there's so many, so many. Forest can't hold it. It's little, it's little, like little teeny patches of forest here and there. We're like, we're kidding ourselves that there's forest around here. So many deer. It's, you know, it's, it's totally nuts. So many deer that are, it, 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 it makes me 
crazy to think about the amount of deer that are put into the landfill every year from roadkill pickups, especially during the winter. Temperatures are low. They're still totally good meat, totally preserved, and they just go in the landfill, you know. Not to mention, like, like Eric and I tain, and we tinker and brain tanning all that stuff. It's really hard crafts, labor-intensive. Uh, really, when you think about it, you know, that's a lot of buckskins, you know. That's a lot of bones. It could be a lot of tools. That's a lot of material, precious material. So for me, getting very intimate with those bodies has been a great passage and a great teaching. And it's so limited, you know. It's like, you know, Eric's been doing that his whole life. Yeah, kill what you love. Does Eric want to say anything about deer? Um, sure. <clears throat> I feel, I'll try not to get too winded. So uh, on the invasive part, I don't really feel like any one person has authority to call something an invasive across the board. Because <laughs> like Victoria said, you know, it can be invasive in this county, but in this county... Uh, in California, for instance, there's a cedar that in this county it's nuisance, in this county it's preserved. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's, so yeah, I mean, I think, and if we don't listen to these plants that are, they come up in disturbances or come up something, they're telling us something about the landscape. So, and most of the plants that we call invasives, you know, most of the ones in this book, a lot of times they're barely a nuisance. So to be like, you're an invasive, I think is kind of offensive without getting to know the plant. So I went ahead and <laughs> took this, and I went ahead and I bought this book. And would you believe everything in there is in here? So um, even if it is an abundant plant or invasive, whatever, I've got a lot of food. <laughs> I've got a lot of food if I know how to treat it. And then this is also a great read. Yeah. Um, and then on to the, the deer thing. Um, I don't know that your listeners can see that. They can't. So Scott's going to have to post <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm doing. Um, so deer, Aldo Leopold in one of his essays for uh, San, in, in Sand County Almanac, uh, the Green Fire, I believe it was, in his youth, you know, he was very hot-headed, I guess. They shot a bunch of wolves, and they watched the fire die out of the wolf's eyes. But also through that experience, they learned that by killing the wolf, they've killed the mountain because the deer population exploded. The deer ate all the vegetation on the entire mountain. And then erosion came in and blew it all out. That's not where I'm going, but <laughs> that's, I wanted to put that in there. Um, for me, the material part of deer is very important, as is the pursuit of anything, any animal or anything. If you're done doing it respectfully and not gadgetry, meaning like I don't want to be in a deer stand like completely outfitted with all the newest and latest stuff. I want to take a lot of books and really, really learn what my animal, what its instincts are, what, how it's feeling, what it's thinking about. And then I want to use my brain and my wits to, to get into its life. I don't want to like take something down at 1,200 yards because I got the best rifle, you know. And it is, it's a huge resource that's being um, denied or being rejected or being whatever. When I took the Master Gardener's course, they or the Master Naturalist course, I'm sorry, they said years and years ago when they brought up deer hunting, people were like, no, that's bad and all this. But now people are like, yeah, they're eating all my shit. They get them out of here. They ruined my Porsche <laughs> and all that stuff. Oh, and um, Judy brought up, we're having an, 
so this ties into the last question too. Japanese knotweed culinary challenge at this location, which is both something we're having here and an invasive plant. <laughs> Dirty word. So. Oh, yeah, it hurts to hear it. Okay, Amanda, uh, let's stay on the subject of uh, invasive species. I see a problem with traditional class coursework where I've seen a lot of that, where when I was at um, graduate school, USA in DC, you know, we were required to teach invasive species, sort of going through the core classes. And I find that what this young gentleman touched on about uh, how it comes back to what's indelible in our childhood, is, as you recall, and what was enduring, uh, still endures today. And it's sort of what we were taught, how, how all this is sort of a retrogressive movement, right? Where we're thinking, is it a myth that our grandparents were into, you know, homesteading? Did they do these things? Was it Little House on the Prairie? You know, where are we at now today? And I think what we're looking at here and the property we're on is about increasing green space. And, and what you sort of allude to with trees and to root systems and things like that, that we need to treat you know, our build environment in a non-evasive way, just if we were doing surgery. Um, so I have one question to see if this might ever be on the docket is looking into uh, rainscaping or things that we can do in our back in our own yards, essentially. And uh, I, that's sort of um, for a friend who was interested in that who couldn't be here today. So thanks so much. And I really enjoyed being here today with all of you. It's maybe a better one for Eric, too, but in terms of rain, you know, it's like if you're not going to use your lawn for anything else, just, just stop doing anything. You know, it'll be a meadow in a year. It's really, to me, it's that simple. Um, pretty much every every sidewalk strip. God, if we just stopped. Just stop doing it. Just stop doing anything. And it'll take much more water. <laughs> I'll tell you that. I'm often, often asked to do uh, permaculture designs for people and, and whatnot. And I really encourage people to just take the class because then they're the lords of their own project. And so or Blue Water Baltimore does a lot of rain barrels and rain gardens and things like that. But um, they have a hammer and everything becomes a nail, I feel. And I think the appropriate approach is to do a water audit for whatever property you have look at what resources you have available what you're willing to do because everything doesn't fit for you know i can't say well this is what we're doing here what we're doing here is what i feel uh the land dictates to us uh the roof the the neighborhood whatever so that's my cheap cheap answer <laughs> okay there's uh be more hydroponics or be more aquaponics i believe um a gentleman john and i can't remember the other guy's name um they specialize in that and that's what they'll do i'm not i'm not really into it so so no not here uh, but i do want to as part of the permaculture class here starting in march we are going to do a field trip to his place because he is off grid and in the city so that's really cool to see something unplugged when you're surrounded i'm sorry yeah um, and if you look up Be More Aquaponics, um, you can email them directly, I'm sure. Can you guys, I guess, touch on as being like somewhat like, uh, can, I, can I say mentors in the community or in your field or study about disconnectedness of us as a whole 
and how to uh, for those who have uh, found the silence or, or again how do you how do you find that you can connect with people or is it really how do you allow people to connect with themselves within what you're trying to uh, introduce or like I said reconnect people within themselves what's what's your approach my answer to this comes pretty much straight out of my healing arts <laughs> training which um you know so many laying out of hands traditions things like that the grand the grand learning there um, to me was space um giving space and holding space that that one craniosacral unwinding teacher mine i mentioned he was kind of a master he could have people that would have like from one to ten they would say they had like eight pain level back pain and they would like come in and sit on a table and he would sit in his chair like five feet away energetically all he's doing is just holding space and he's like taking all of his shit way out of it and just giving them a pure space never puts his hands on him and uh after 30 minutes or whatever whatever person would walk out of there and have like a level two back pain or none it would never come back you know that's crazy shit and I learned that so many times uh, you know on so many different levels um, I don't ever want to add anything to anybody I don't ever want to push anything on anybody ever like, we're all like like Nietzsche's camel you know we're all weighed down driving into the desert and we we have put so much stuff on ourselves and so many rules and so many um um constrictions um so and I am, I am, there's parts of me that are always, that are unconsciously active and that are, are doing that probably and doing that for myself still. But for me, the direction at least is more and more and more how to hold pure space for somebody, which just means I'm here. I'm willing to witness the perfection in you. And I'm willing, I'm willing to be witnessing the perfection in me, and I'm willing to be witnessing the perfection in you. I'm seeing it, kind of like I mentioned, like, see the kingdom. It's, it's too, it's see this, like, this, there's a God here. There's a God there, and there, and there. It's not, it's not this one. It is this, it's in this too. It's infused in this. But interact with that one. And if I'm doing that, somehow, mysteriously, I have to trust that like I'm in service to that one and hands off, you know, it's like all, all I want, like I said, all I want is like take off the prison bars, you know, like once we all realize that we're free, which we are, we're actually like in this moment, like I'm free. I like this one is free. That's it. No matter what. When one realizes that like it's, just bloom you know like i want to witness you're blooming like oh my god it's like all it's like these torches on fire just to try and be a little more uh specific like trying to get people connected back to nature or themselves you you touched on it earlier when you were talking about doubt and fear and i, I think that might be just a key to the whole just listening to oneself getting rid of that however you do it but within that doubt and fear, I think academica comes into play because I feel that if something's not written, 
or it's not doesn't have a background in academica people find doubt like there has to be some diploma there has to be um you know some some grid system or pyramid system how do you get people to connect the real to, with just being nature like within your class i guess it was coloring outside of the lines how can we become those children again to be to be free what do you find that within your dealings with communicating to people about healing about plants about permaculture how do you reconnect how how, how is that you know is that just sitting allowing someone who doesn't get the opportunity to just sit and be in nature is 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 it as simple as that? Just please sit down and, and look. I, mean, I don't know. I feel like people who like sometimes take my even workshops or classes, I think I have a tendency to like try to stuff too much stuff in there. Um, in terms of literature, there's so much wonderful literature that's not muddled. You know, these are all shining lights. Um, I always, you know, give people lots to read that's, that's academic, that's, but that's not colored by prejudices so that people can see that like there's many people who are witnessing this and that's important. Inviting, inviting people in when you're not afraid. You know, lead by example. Acknowledge that there is fear. Never, don't try to fight the fear. That's just like you're going to, it's an endless battle. You'll waste your energy. It's always going to be there. Just stop paying attention. Just stop. Uh, just let it, just let it, like, let it be. Don't, like, do its bidding, you know. I think Eric wants to say something. I mean, you're already coming camping. This is metaphorically speaking. So you're already coming on the camp trip. All we really do is offer the flavors, you know, but it is, I think, a lot of fears holding yourself back. You, you've got to make that that final leap. I mean, we're trying to kind of spark those connections, I guess. But this is all very queer for us, too, because, I mean, I grew up very odd. <laughs> Victoria grew up very odd, I'm sure. You know, so to be kind of leading, I guess, or or whatever is is very odd for both of us so really i mean for me i just want to build friendships and let's go camping and then hey i'm making dinner you want to try some if not then bring your own <laughs> but I, I wanted to ask you are you asking because you're having a hard time making a reconnection or or are you asking because you yourself want to are, are working with other people that you're trying to me personally it's it's i want everyone to join a party you know the more the merrier I, that's that's my feeling and that's not always the case like people are afraid of dirt well i mean <laughs> it can become diluted too you know if people aren't ready then they're going to dilute the water right right but i feel as though that sometimes people don't even and maybe i have this bleak view on society which I probably do, but sometimes it's like people are just, it's, it's about ignorance and it's nothing wrong with ignorance. You just, if you don't know, you don't know. And I was, I am very fortunate that I grew up, I had grandmothers and it was something that we all did at one time. It was something that we have forgotten. And when everyone had a garden because that's what you did, you wanted food, you knew. We, uh, you come from a generation that came from uh, the Depression. People understood independence. They, we, there was a car to be worked on. The industry didn't make it so that you couldn't reach up spark plugs. You wanted to change spark plugs, you could do it. We are so far away from that. We are so far that people don't know that 
tomatoes grow on a vine. Well, yeah, we have to start with children. Yes, that, that is great. But then we still need teachers. We need people to teach children, you know? And if those people who are teachers don't know, how do you connect? How are you able to, to open up their eyes to see like, oh, you know, this is what we can do to connect? Or how do you influence in a way of someone who has not a clue? Can I that? Yeah. So, so I came up from D.C. today, and I'm involved in a lot of urban farming there. Um, and I think that what's really interesting about the Baltimore urban farming scene is that you guys do have these permaculture projects. There are some in D.C., but I think that you have a little more flexibility with that here. So I guess I'm wondering if we want communities to be involved in food and we want people to have a better understanding of that, is permaculture something that the citizens need to bring to their cities? Is that something that cities need to be more involved in and encourage open spaces? So what's the connection there between uh, people want to be involved, I think, increasingly in cities. They want to be in green spaces. They want kids to be out there. It's more common in schools now. And so if we want to have people want plots, they want beds, they want to go in there, they want to do annual farming, and there's going to be a mix of that here in this space, the perennials and the annuals. But I guess what really is the balance there and how do you get people in a permaculture space that ideally takes care of itself, but people can still be involved and they can still get out there and spend their time in nature? Um, well, first, um, permaculture doesn't necessarily mean just gardening or just this garden or this plot or this landscape or these people but it is something that can be fostered by an individual or a community or whomever and i recently saw a video dave holmgren speaking about permaculture and how it's a slow movement it is a very slow movement but it's an important one because we don't have to wait for government. We don't have to wait for legislation. We don't have to wait for laws to change. We can each do it individually. And by doing it individually, collectively, you know, waiting for the whole world to change is extremely unrealistic. Waiting for all of Baltimore to change, it's not going to happen either. But I can do something right now, right here. I can invite you all here and we can, you know, taste some of the flavors. But I think trying to compartmentalize permaculture as a garden, I think we're gonna it's gonna get all convoluted and twisted up scott's itching <laughs> you've got a mic i know i have a mic <laughs> david holmgren was one of my early interviews part of the conversation i need to go back and listen to the interview because i've quoted this several times and i don't remember if it was in the interview or not but it was something that stuck with me permaculture went sideways after writing permaculture one permaculture two and became more about the landscape and so that was what bill mollison wrote in his designer's manuals about the landscape but people forget, I think it's chapter four. Where, do you have a copy here? Yeah. Right yeah. Right Where is it? Right behind my head? Yeah. Right there. No, no. Where? Oh. In chapter, I just want to reference this since we're talking about it. We have it here. There are people who have taken PDCs based on this book and don't remember chapter 14, the strategies of an alternative global nation. That was really their long-term end goal, thank you, was about how to transform society. But that book was written, became so popular, that's what everybody keyed off of, was the preceding 13 chapters. So I've had arguments with people who took permaculture design courses based on that book that there's nothing in permaculture but economics. Like, what about chapter 14? What chapter 14? And then, in talking with David and where this is going, is that David himself even said that what 
permaculture and talking about the landscape was for was to give us a common language. That we should all learn permaculture design and apply it to the landscape because that is the space in which we can all have a common tongue. But then to take those ideas and to use those metaphors of the landscape, to use those principles and ethics, and to bring them back out into the world into what it was that we do. I'm practicing permaculture today by recording this conversation because this is how I do it. If you're someone who's involved in policy work or something else, that's permaculture too, as long as you're applying these ideas of earth care, people care, you know, limiting population or redistributing the surplus or fair shares or however you want to embody that third ethic. That's really what permaculture is, is about these big things, but it got lost. And it's only been in the last like four or five years that permaculture, now it's being referred to as socioeconomic permaculture, social permaculture, whatever, it's all permaculture. All these ideas that are bigger than just we're going to plant a garden. And as I live in community now and practice permaculture on what I'm hoping is a larger scale now, that it's about being able to communicate and build community again. That that's really where this change is going to happen. And again, I'll quote David here, or at least paraphrase poorly, that with what he was looking at doing, because I asked him, how do we bring this into the mainstream? His response was, we don't. We get those people who are already interested and engaged and we bring them in. Because permaculture is a long game. It's a long con. It's a subversive way to change the world by doing little things every day that make the world a better place for ourselves and others. So that by the time anybody realizes what we've done, it's already taken care of itself. But for me, living in community and a lot of the, the social work that I'm doing now, it's about building relationships. And I think that that idea of building a system that, that takes care of itself is also one of these other fallacies that's, it's this myth that's become legendary within permaculture that we're going to design something that doesn't need us. Well, if we're going to design something that doesn't need us, then why are we designing at all? Because we're the ones who need what we're designing. Because then it's our own intelligence and our own hubris and our own, I can't think of the other word, but it's these other things about when we're imposing ourselves and our own decisions and other pieces on the world, we're still making, as Victoria, you were pointing out over and over again, we're the ones who are creating this story. We're the ones who are creating this, these myths. Well, the, the natural world doesn't need us. You know, we need that world. So how do we love this thing and do something with it? And ultimately, it's about building our relationships with other human beings so that we can draw out of them. To really use that classic Greek idea of education is to draw out of someone. You know, we're not pushing something into someone or some knowledge or idea. We're drawing out of them what it is their one true thing or what is it that, what it is that they love. And that if we are able to tell new stories and to take science and culture and spiritual traditions and everything else and find a way to connect with somebody, we can draw out of them what they really care about and then send them off into the world so that they're not afraid. So they have their one true thing so that they can love the world and what it is that they're doing. And all these other big questions we have solve themselves. Sorry, there. I ranted, I rambled. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm probably going to rant a little bit too. I just want I see these things on my Facebook feed all the time. I saw a recent article, read about the doctor who quit being a doctor and now does permaculture. Well, he, he should have just kept being a doctor and done permaculture. Like, it's, it's based on ethics and principles. Well, Unless he hated being a doctor. Well, yeah, that's well, okay I mean, too. He, and, and we all still need a doctor. I talk about this in the PDC. Like, we still need health care. We still need lawyers. We still need, um, you know, cooks and child care and security and all that stuff. But you can keep doing pretty much what you have to, what you're doing now, but you can do it a little bit differently with different ethics and things. I think for me, and this might be off topic, I don't think so, but... The way I try to teach and connect with people in the PDC and with other classes is 
is not textbook science. Like there, yeah, we have a lot of books here. I don't really feel like a dictated landscape that a lot of permaculture designers try to do is going to help anybody. You have to have intuition and intimacy with your evolving landscape, and that's going to be healthy for you and the land. And if we don't do that, if we just do textbook science, we're just regurgitating old mistakes. Which is interesting for me because of my academic background. There's a lot of conversation within environmental education that those stories and that disconnect from the disparate little parts needs to occur in order for us to have a, a deeper education and sense of place to care about these things. That it, it doesn't do me any good to teach my children that the polar bears are dying because they're the only place they're probably ever going to see a polar bear is in a zoo. But if I can tell them, if we plant milkweed, there'll be more monarchs. You love monarchs because you're a little butterfly girl. Then that's a good way to connect. And then later we can talk about this, the pieces of what the milkweed is there for and how that provides habitat and food and these other things. But it's this, this continual desire to reduce and reduce and reduce that disconnects us from the stories that are our culture. It's, I read, there were several people who've mentioned The Little House on the Prairie. And I've read that sto those stories to my daughter for a long time. She's now finally of an age where she's reading big, um, Little House in the Big Woods by herself. And I think about it, we're only a couple of generations removed from those kinds of ideas and those kinds of communities. But we've traded community for capital. And in trading community for financial capital, it's allowed us to disconnect ourselves from each other because I don't have to know who can fix an engine because I can pay somebody to fix an engine. This is where I get a little political in my own perspective, but I don't care what somebody loves because it could be a love of money, but we still need other people. But that, that kind of story and the, that, those cultural pieces are, have been traded. And we don't have a long oral tradition or a long religious tradition in many communities anymore that allow us to connect with other people in a deep, meaningful way. And I know in living in community now, we're trying to recreate all that. And how can I trust someone well enough that if I'm trying to live in the gift and I can't make rent this month, then am I going to get kicked out of the house? And if you can trust the people around you who go, no, that's not going to happen because we're all working together to keep a roof over our head or our, a community together then that starts to break down a lot of this disconnect because you have lots of people to pull from who not only love their own lives and what it is that they do, but they love and trust you too. But it's so easy to look in our wallet and go, oh, I got enough money to pay for this. I don't need you. I don't need you. I don't need you. When any day our employer could go, I don't need you. And now all this disconnection that we've gone through removes us from anything that can support us. And then we're back into a place of fear and we start thinking about how am I going to make it through to tomorrow? And all these other things that we've talked about all day that seem so, if you will, airy-fairy and removed from all this, it all comes back around. Because if we live in community and trust and love one another, a lot of these questions answer themselves. All right, I'm done. I'll drop my mic and I'll walk away. If anybody else wants to have the conversation, <laughs> feel free. If I still smoked, I'd have one. Uh, I just want to make sure that Orlando felt like you got followed up on that little bit. I'm, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate. I just want to hear so other people can hear so that the audience can hear like i mean we're all touching on it my thing is we can plant gardens and grow food but if the community is not connected with that if they're not growing where's anything going so i'm just i'm hearing like desperation is what i'm hearing a little bit i may be just wrongly perceiving that that's that's what i'm i'm, I'm feeling i don't know about maybe concern greatly concerned yeah um and saddened in many ways because of because we have food deserts what is that that's a it, it's a, it should be a joke 
know, like, I'm sorry. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that should. What is that? Food, food desert. We're here in one, right now. I would say you have to go there first. You know, like wherever the one in here is is screaming, wherever there's desperation in here, go there. Like be be with that one. If it if it hurts, like whatever is there's something there. You know, like we all have the. We're on a very terrifying world. You know, it's a very confusing world. So we all have these places like that to go into, because when the vessel is like clean in here. And when there's so much trust in here, we'll, sh we'll shine so bright, everyone will get drunk with us, you know. But it's like, what what I would really like to to demonstrate to people is that what's in here is actually what's out here. It's it's counterintuitive. We're not taught to function this way. But to deal with to deal with what's out here, don't go out there. I mean, here, because what, what the fear that's in these people that's keeping them from, you know, it's, you know, they're getting sick or they're not eating right or whatever. The fear that's in them is in me, too. You know, it's like, there's a way that I am, I am all of those. So whatever you heal here, what's in here is your, is what you're given. That's your, um, it's your responsibility. That's, that's the peace you've been given. So heal it in here, follow it, trust it, go with it. You heal the world, you know, it's cliche, but you can really do it. Um, how many curse words can you edit out of this? <laughs> I can't edit out a whole lot, but I can put a warning at the beginning that it contains adult <laughs> language. Have you heard of Thug Kitchen? thugkitchen.org it would be something like uh thugkitchen.org they they make little memes for facebook you hot as balls this summer eat some fucking peaches they're refreshing and sweet and i bring that up because i think sometimes the language could be a bear an easy way to break down a barrier there's kids that walk by our house uh have probably never seen strawberries growing on a vine and never had a fresh strawberry except what they get at the grocery store Every time they walk by, I'm like, hey, you want a fucking strawberry? Eat that shit. It's good. <laughs> they Now they come by every day, you know? And and a lot of, some of it too, I think, when I was out here, I think I told this story before. There's one person that lives up here that uh, there's a little bit of resistance to a farm here. She don't want a farm here. She'd rather see like other stuff. And I'm like, well, how do you feel about fresh, juicy, soft peaches? She's like, yeah, I love that. <laughs> I'm like, well, well, come talk to me in a couple of years then. I think, I don't know, food can be a, a easy way to break it down. They don't have to come out here and do the work necessarily. But it'll be, they might come, when they start coming asking for your peaches and you're like, hey, got a shovel here, want to put a peach tree in? They might go for it. I don't know. Yeah, meeting people where they're at is such a big deal. You know, so, you know, like it's not like people need to be doing things the same way you are. Some people, it's like just a wildflower in a vase, and they remember something about being a kid. Or it's like, oh, these have some of these blueberries. Or like, oh, I'm having a cup of tea. Do you want some of my cup of tea? Oh, what is it? Oh, just persimmon leaves. <laughs> you know, um, so innocent. Speaking a little bit in between those two spaces, I find that the more that I put myself out there and am open to the vulnerability of putting myself out there, the more that people come when they see what it is that I'm doing and, and doing the different pieces. But I used to joke that it's like, you're trying to throw something at the wall until it sticks. But right now I'm not throwing something at the wall trying to make it see if it sticks. I'm throwing something at a fan. And all that's blowing back on me until eventually something sticks hard enough that the fan stops. And it might take me a while to clean myself off to find what it is that was there. But once I do, it's so much bigger than anything that I could have imagined. And then people are already there. Um, that I wouldn't have imagined who were there to support me and to work through it. But it's just, I can't 
tell you how many different iterations I've gone through of conversations and interviews and other things just within the five years of doing the show, let alone other businesses that I've run and everything else, to find the right thing that connected with others. But as long as I was available and out there, there were always people who were ready to help push me up the next hill or those times when I was ready to walk back down that hill to say no to keep going. And I think that once you find those possibility cheerleaders to borrow my borrow from my friend Ethan Hughes, that all of these other things become even more possible. But it's taking that first step and deciding to take the next one and the next one. It's a friend of mine was a mountaineer and he climbed, what is it, the like the seven largest peaks in North America. I was like, well, how did you do it? He's like one step at a time. And then he described that technically when you're climbing a mountain, it li is literally you take one step and you lock your leg in order to rest to take the next one because you're so oxygen deprived and tired and everything else. And the, when he described that to me, that's what this process feels like every time that we do this, that all I can do is take one more step and just rest long enough to take the next one. But then eventually you get to the top and you're looking down the other side and going, now I've got to jump. <laughs> and it's, do I climb down, you know, a little bit and I'm just over that ledge or do I actually jump and figure out how to build my wings on the way down? Yes. But, <laughs> yes. But there are people here in this room today that whatever it is that, you know, anybody wants to do, there are folks there to help them and support them and to, to give feedback and ideas of what are they doing next or what do they want to do. And it's just finding and building your cheerleaders and your army until there's lots of people there. But it can take years and years and years to finally get there. But as you start finding the little movements and wanting to figure out well, who is, who's solving the food desert issue and who can I connect with. And every day I find new organizations that are doing work that I never heard of because it's like, you know, one woman with her phone making phone calls to raise money to donate to things or one church group that's um, taking care of distributing like blankets to the homeless and things like that and then finding them and connecting them and getting involved and but it's beautiful it's glorious and it's all there and i don't know i talk around in circles because this is all that i ever think about but i, I hope that that helps and you know that's what I was... can i add one little final Go i'm just it. being like nudged here all night um i feel like if i don't just speak about this i'm doing myself harm i mentioned something called the divine feminine earlier um that's not a term that I think is always used in the utmost. But what I mean when I say that is a wound that I have been uncovering that is so deep and so quiet that it took me this long to find. By feminine, feminine I mean matter, matter, mot. And I'm understanding that this feeling we have of being betrayed by matter, form, earth, that we can't trust it and that that's actually our enemy is deep and is probably the number one way we're getting in our own way. You know, this desire to fix nature. You know, think something about invasive people or invasive species. We wouldn't feel that way if we didn't f have places in ourselves that we felt that way about, right? Like, cut it out. There's this part we know this is a bad emotion. This is, I'm not allowed to have this. This is a trauma. This is ugly. This is forbidden, right? Like all of it is holy. All of it is, you know, this thing. We're we're in this we're in this split, spirit and matter. You know, we want to get to heaven. We want to get to the whole place of holy ideals, right? Plato, whatever. This is something that I think is coming. I do believe now. This is coming back up now. Like at this time, this um, we have we have like, you know, the sun. Where's the moon? Um, 
We have so mistrusted matter that we think that that's our enemy, right? We think that our bodies, this is like, this is what's fucking this all up, that I have this body, right? And we have to feed ourselves. We have all this stuff. But like, what if that's, what if this is the divine child, like matter here, that like we have bodies and we have needs and there's all this precious life that's growing everywhere. To reframe that orientation, that there is nothing of any part of this matter that is a sin, not one single speck of it, right? Or that's a mistake. I would be doing a disservice if I did not put myself in service of that now. Mater, you know, mother, here, stop rejecting ourselves. We'll stop rejecting nature. You know, we are nature. You know, we're infinitely held by nature, infinitely held. Like every piece of our hair is stroked by that one. If we can trust that, kind of like Scott saying a little bit, you know, with that, you feel held. Like your, your, you know, your household is not going to kick you out. It's a, there's, it's a, a universal kind of trust there. It's not something you have to believe, but you feel. Your cells remember. You know, this was holy. You have no reason but to do what you love. You have no reason to align with fear anymore. There's no reason. Yay to all those. So, thank you. I'd like to say thank you to Eric and Victoria for hosting this event that day at Charm City Farms in Baltimore, Maryland. They're doing really good work in that urban environment and making incredible connections. As I record this, Victoria has left Baltimore and is continuing her journeys of self-discovery and as a healer. And Eric is currently in North Dakota after purchasing and loading up a bus with himself and other activists who are there in support of the Standing Rock protesters and saying no to the Dakota Access Pipeline. They're just great people who I feel honored to have met and get to know more about the work that it is that they're doing in doing my part to sit and have these conversations and to bring different voices onto the air. As Victoria said, we are all beautiful and incredible and alive in this matter that is ourselves and that we all have spaces to inhabit. Like Eric said, you hear those stories about people who give up what it is that they're doing to go and become permaculture practitioners. But what about practicing permaculture where you are? About hearing these stories of personal growth and transformation and to take the inspiration from them and to do what it is that you're called to lately. I've been kind of turning around this idea of what it is that we do and about getting our hands dirty and practicing what it is that we care about as in a couple of days will be the six year anniversary of starting this podcast and finding what it is that I love. And I think about conversations with people like Peter Michael Bauer when we talked about how much we love those folks who can go and sit in trees, but understand that that's not where we're at, that that's not what we do, and to not feel guilt or shame for it, but instead to really inhabit our work and what we're good at. I'm really thankful that this episode wound up sitting in the archives for a while. <laughs> I've got so much information and data from different conversations that have been recorded, video clips that John has taken at different events that we've been to. There's more audio from David Bilbrey streaming in that are kind of pulling together all these different pieces that are what I love. I'm just, I wonder what it is that you do. How do you spend your days practicing permaculture? 
what do stories like Victoria's, where she's been interested in this since, you know, birth, or I think of my own life where I've been engaged by permaculture for almost 20 years, but that my love of this goes back to my childhood and hiking over hills and learning how to start fires when my friend Josh, his dad, would do little campfires for us, getting in trouble for some of the fires that we would build. But going out there and just having a love of the world and spending every minute exploring it, and then going through that post-collegiate period and not knowing what to do, but just doing what everybody else did, getting a job and working a career and just feeling like something was off. But then having all those skills that were built together over the years and combining them into something that became this show. So yeah, what is it that you love? What do you love so much that it breaks your heart and are called to take action on it? If you have a job right now that pays the bills but isn't what you love, what do you do at night to keep that fire alive inside of you? Are there particular authors that you read who continue to help you on the road that you're on? Other than this show, are there podcasts that you listen to that you love? I know some of mine, my kids, and I love to listen to Welcome to Night Vale together. My daughter loves the kind of absurdist, somewhat horrific stories like that, that twist the regular understanding that are more than, you know, Nancy Drew or Little House on the Prairie. My son is fascinated by Legos and building, and in addition to things like Welcome to Night Vale, we'll sit and we'll listen to some heavy metal and build with those blocks. And already he wants to build with his life. Doesn't know if that's going to be with his hands inside homes or whether it's going to be with heavy equipment, but that's where his fascination resides already and has been a deep interest for years. And is where, as he becomes a Cub Scout, is interested in exploring that through scouting and building a model rocket here soon that will go launch with the other scouts. What is it that you do that you love? It's what I'm left wondering after this Q&A session with Eric and Victoria and the audience that was there that day. How does hearing this make you think about how you'll take action now or what will be your next step? I'd like to hear from you. I'm really fascinated by your stories as much as those that I share. What is it that you do? What makes you get up in the morning, ready to face the day before you need your coffee or anything else, just as soon as you open your eyes? What are those people or places or ideas that make you come alive. I'd love to hear from you. I mean that honestly. Whether it's a letter sent by mail or a little scribbling on the back of a postcard, the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018, is where you can send those. Or if you're as tied into the world as so many of us are, you can send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Or if you'd like to sit down and have a conversation sometime, that phone line is always open. Not always able to answer, and I do tend to turn it off over the weekend or on the evenings when I'm spending time with my children, but I will give you a call back, and we can sit, we can talk about whatever it is that's on your mind. 717-827-6266. Yeah, I'm just feeling really warm and held by the conversation that we had. So, I'll be back in a couple of days with another episode. This one will be about where I'm looking to take myself and the podcast in its seventh year, which starts in just a few days. But until then, spend each day doing what it is you love, being a little subversive, and creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, 
and each other.